Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Hey, friends, and welcome to Typology. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show, and we want to congratulate Ian on the success of his new book, The Road Back to You, an Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery, has sold 100,000 copies in its first year. You can grab it on Amazon, iTunes, or wherever your local books are sold. If you're new to the Enneagram and want to learn more about it, head over to our podcast page at www.typologypodcast.com. That's www.typologypodcast.com. And download a free chapter of Ian's book titled Finding Your Type. Also, while you're on the Typology website, visit the About page and take the introductory Enneagram assessment to start your journey toward identifying your Enneagram number. Now, as promised, I'd like to give a shout out to a few of our Patreon supporters. Howard Cornett, Wendy Cox, Tiffany Crane, Leon Colshaw Ewart, Leslie Davis, Stephen Frederick, Jamie Garrington, Jenny Gilbert, Allison Greenwald, and Chris Hauser. Your contributions are so greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. And now, here's the host of our show, Ian Cron. Hey, Typology friends, this is Ian Cron, and today we have my good friend, Science Mike McCarg on our show. Uh, For those of you who don't know who don't know Mike, he's the host of uh, the popular podcast Ask Science Mike and he's the co-host of the podcast The Liturgists with my friend uh, Michael Gunger. And I have to say by the way about about the show The Liturgists uh, Mike is that I think that was the first podcast we were on when right before our new book uh, The Road Back to You came out and I think you Probably sing, you and Mike, Michael probably single-handedly launched us, <laughs> uh, given that you get a million downloads a month, at least at that time, on, uh, on the That's, Liturgists. That episode just crossed three million total downloads, so it's done quite well. Are you serious? Totally serious, yeah. Oh my gosh, that's a huge number. Yeah, it still gets thousands and thousands of downloads a day, still. <laughs> Well, I wish so. people were buying my book at thousands and thousands of people a day. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've noticed that, too. Podcasters, they love the free podcasts. They're a little more hesitant with the paid book, but yeah, you know, that's how it goes. Wow. Well, that's that's exciting. It's pretty cool. So you're you're an author, right? You your wonderful book Finding God in the Waves was a was a bestseller. You're a podcast. I have seen you speak. In fact, years ago I saw you speak at the Wild Goose Festival, which I think was one of your sort of your one of your early sort of I don't know if this is true or not, but I was under the impression then it, it was sort of a sort of the beginning of an of an upshot for you as a as a speaker. Is that was is that a fair assessment? That's that would be completely correct. Yeah. yeah. And I remember thinking, yeah. look, we got a player here. <laughs> 
by accident, but yeah, that was uh yeah um, it was I, I mean I, I've done a lot of like tech conferences back in the day uh, my nerd background right. but the science mic and spirituality stuff that was that was all new wild goose here yeah and you were actually talking about um, science faith and I think we were talking about you were talking about racism is that is that correct uh, yeah I gave a main stage talk about peacemaking that included a lot of uh, discussion of race and racism. Okay, because so, I mean, you can't talk about peacemaking in America and not talk about race and racism. <laughs> exactly, that's exactly right. So it is funny that you gave it as a as a nine on the enneagram, someone who is a peacemaker, that you were giving a talk on peacemaking at the Wild Goose Festival. <laughs> and I did not know I was a nine at that time either. Isn't um, that amazing? I actually had a really hard time figuring out what I was on the enneagram, which I understand now is kind of a nine thing, but. Yeah, nines and sixes often have a, a very difficult time figuring out their number. Now, if for nines, uh, the the reason a, a part of the reason has to do is that you can see the world through every number's eyes except your own. So you know you identify more strongly with every other type than any other type would, and therefore you would be kind of conflicted and confused. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's brutal. I was sure. That I was either uh, a two um, or a five, mm. and um, because but when I would take the tests, you know, the online tests, which I, you know they're not the best, but right. when you're starting out, that seems to be the only option. Google is your first bet, and I would just kind of score flat across all the categories with just a little peek at two and a little peek at five. Uh, because if you ask a nine, what do you think about blank? We're like, I, I don't know. What do you mean? What do I think? What, <laughs> what, 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 you, you, you think I have like a, a, an opinion or a preference? No, that's a foreign concept to me. I just understand that those things exist and that other people have them. And it's easy for me to understand what your preference would be, but it's impossible to understand what I want for dinner. I mean, my gosh, what is a want, right? <laughs> right. Oh, listen, I am married to a nine. I, I, I am married to a nine, and I'm the father of a nine. And oh. so I have a profound affection for nines, these peacemakers um, whose unconscious motivation is really to avoid conflict at all costs, to maintain relational connection, the status quo, and to preserve inner peace and harmony. Would you would you add anything onto that about nines, their inner sort of unconscious motivation? Yeah, I think uh, that desire for inner and outer peace, it means we unconsciously absorb other people's emotional energy. Hmm. So if other people are upset with each other and they're both our friend— or if we're in a charged national political environment, say, hypothetically, with a lot of polarization, it's exhausting to the nine because we're unconsciously pulling in everyone's thoughts, but not letting it affect how we are on the outside or how we are in our innermost place. So we end up having this like calm interior, calm exterior, and then there's this giant jello shock absorber in between the two, and that's unconsciously the reason nines are always so tired and always ready for a nap i think is that it's exhausting to absorb all that emotional energy all the time yes. and to not be moved or affected by it yeah i, I mean uh, you, 
you think about the idea of boundaries, right? Psychological boundaries. Um, nines have an internal boundary and an external boundary. The internal boundary is to hold down uh, any desires or feelings, uh, to hold, to tamp them down, to sort of turn the turn the flame down on them, so that they don't disturb that calm inner sea. And then you've got an external boundary against all the other people in the planet that might, you know, cause, <laughs> you know, internal tumult. And so, yeah, you are exhausted. You know, now, can I ask you a question about that? Do you sometimes or have people ever commented on the fact that you sometimes if you just sit down for a while, you just nod off? Uh, I went on a um, trip with some friends to the Holy Land. And uh, it quickly became the joke in the group that I could fall asleep literally anywhere. We were in this <laughs> this really noisy cafe in the West Bank, and we all sat down for like five minutes. And I leaned my head back against the wall, and I was out, yes. deep sleep. They all left without me, didn't realize I was sleeping in a chair in the cafe, and had to go back for me. Now that's very funny. <laughs> And it's it's very nine. I mean, I just I know nines that they just uh, we you know we 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 say in 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 the enneagram literature that nines have less stamina than any other number on the enneagram. Eights have more stamina or energy than mm. any other number on the enneagram. And I I agree with you. I think it's because you're you're having to hold up two boundaries, not just one. And it makes it's exhausting and. If you are in a highly con a place where there's a great deal of conflict, uh, like my daughter, Maddie, who's a nine, this is no exaggeration. My daughter, Kaylee, is an eight. She is an activist. She is outspoken. She's intense. My son is a seven who has a lot of energy and loves to get my eight daughter going. And just for the sake of, you know, let's have an argument uh, to be, <laughs> you know, just to be entertaining. So we're in the car one day in New York. There's a protest going on. It was actually a Black Lives Matter protest is going on kaylee goes on uh really onto a uh you know uh, an opinion rant aiden is stoking it and my nine maddie has crawled up into a ball and fallen asleep mm -hmm. in between mm -hmm. them in the back seat just the stress of the conflict she just went out right oh oh man that uh that almost ended my marriage Ooh. that same tendency Ooh, tell, uh, me, I'm married tell us about to that. a six oh. and a counterphobic six. Um, so who, who can look she like gets an eight? Into, yeah, so when she gets into a conflict, she is into the conflict. And if we get too intense or argue for too long, right? A, she gets frustrated that I never uh, react emotionally. Mm -hmm. It's like trying to argue with fist fight with a beanbag, right? Like it just. Right. Absorbs the blows, doesn't ever hit back. But then also, I'll actually start yawning uncontrollably oh. if the oh. argument goes too long because I struggle to stay awake in intense times of conflict. At low levels of conflict, I'm really good at finding other people's emotional levers and kind of soothing them and calming them and getting things under control. But if that fails, and if a conflict escalates to a point where I realize there's nothing I can do about it, I'm either going to fall asleep or occasionally erupt with such terrifying anger that the conflict ends because everyone's afraid that the usually sleepy nine suddenly looks like a dangerous wild animal. Because um, we don't, 
I, in my experience as a nine, there is no um, anger middle gear. You're either inert or the surface of the sun. Mm. And um, it's a really it's a really frightening place to be because it, it, I don't get angry often. On those occasions that I do have uncontrolled anger, those are the times when my emotional sensitivity and awareness of others backfires because I'll say something so cutting mm. and so cruel that it actually wounds the person I'm in conflict with in a significant way, which then reinforces this fear of my own anger. Mm. Um, so trying to get to a healthy place with anger for a nine is so, so challenging. Okay, well, how do you um, do it? How do you do it? I don't know that I have totally in my life. I, I've, I've started to um, unpack and become a, more aware of where how my nineness was formed mm. um i had a i had an authority figure in my life in my family whose temper terrified me and so i learned to have a really emotional high gain antenna so that i could forecast emotional storms on the horizon and prevent them before they kind of roll across the the horizon and into the area um, and then I also was a really uh, a bullied kid. I was a nerd. I didn't have any friends. And I, I started to use this emotional sensibility that kept me safe at home into making me a pathetic target for bullies. Mm. I figured out what kind of got them off and what kind of disappointed them. So I became a disappointed target so that a great success for me in life was not being accepted, but just to be ignored. And... Becoming aware that uh, I fear my anger because it reflects someone else's anger that used to frighten me has made me realize um, sometimes I just have to sit down, maybe with a therapist, maybe by myself, and ruminate on what makes me angry and just get red-faced and just feel angry about something and then let myself know that there's nothing wrong with anger. Mm-hmm. That anger is not a bad emotion. It's not a negative emotion. It's not inherently unhealthy. It's just a way that our body and our personality is trying to tell us something. And that something is a boundary has been pushed or a wrong has been made. And then if we allow anger to motivate us into seeking solutions or we allow anger to let us know that we need to give ourselves attention, then it's healthy. It's not healthy when I push it down into the nine basement below what we call our inner sanctum. Mm-hmm. Uh, nines have an ability to to have a conversation without even being a part of it. Yeah. Okay. Now hold on. That's so. That is such an. Imp- <laughs> uh, this is so great because you're so you're so familiar with the type, um, and and that's a uh, sort of a feature of nines that I don't think a lot of people know about. Tell people about the inner sanctum. Well, if if all of life is exhausting for a nine, trying to maintain external and internal harmony, so we just take little vacations constantly. So in a conversation that we're enjoying with people we love, we can just check out and uh, we can just kind of trust our body to turn our head and look at people when they're talking to even say basic words and phrases and affirmations <laughs> while... We are just either asleep in our mind or imagining something, you know, 
some being somewhere else or or for for nines like me that really uh one of my kind of ultimate coping mechanisms is food i might imagine myself eating a pizza if i feel like the conversation is going into a difficult place and just think about the last time i had a, a great pie uh, and we just kind of hide in this sanctum and it we're always at peace in the inner sanctum but in my own kind of visualization of of the type under the inner sanctum is a vault where our feelings are kept so at in the inner sanctum we're actually closest to and most afraid of our own feelings um, and so what I've learned to do with anger and other feelings in that inner sanctum model is I go to my inner sanctum, yes, but then in my inner sanctum, I let the feelings out. I, I, can, I know uh, with several nines, uh, when they get what I call the hundred mile stare, mm. where, where they're kind of looking into the middle distance, you're in a conversation with them. And and they're in the room, but they're kind of off. They've they've checked. It. You, you can just tell they have tuned out. And I'll say to them, like I'll say to my wife sometimes, I'll go, "Where did you go? Where are you right now?" And she'll come back, you know. Uh, and you know, it's like just yeah, it's just now. She will also say about the inner sanctum that you know she's driving the car and she's kind of, that that's the that's the rumination room. That's where she even mm-hmm. goes into the past and begins to have conversations that oh i should have said this or what if i'd said that and it's sort of you know she's ruminating over things that she might have said and didn't say or or should i agree or should i disagree Uh, what's it going to cost me if i disagree in terms of relationship you know and and then it's it's just very circular and it's very very difficult it gets very very molasses in there you know Mm mm-hmm mm-hmm so that's that. That's the hundred miles. You do know the nines. Oh boy! <laughs> oh boy! And then of course, I ha- they 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 actually they will look at you like they're agreeing, but they're only seeming to agree. They're I call them like a seeming number. They're seeming to agree, even though they're not. They're actually probably in their head going, "Do I agree? Do I disagree? Should I agree?" And you know, it's. It's just going in a circle. Is that, and this is why the whole ambivalent, I mean, it's crazy, right? I don't know. I've had to learn to like tell my friends when I say yes while you're talking, yes means I hear and understand you. Yes doesn't mean I agree with you. I don't even know if I agree with you. I don't know if I agree with anything. Um, the, the, the fundamental aspect of a nine is not to get to a point of agreeing but to understand, can I put myself in your shoes? Can I really understand how you got to that place? And that means very, very often for a nine, we find that we fully understand and in our nine way, therefore agree with contradictory positions and contradictory issues. A nine can hear two sides of debate, find both sides compelling and honestly tell both groups, I agree with you. And that's, that's useful in the work of peacemaking and making people feel heard and known. But it also means that if we're not careful, we can appear to be playing both sides or to be duplicitous because the other types mean something else by agreement. For a nine, in my experience as a nine, agreement just means understanding. Mm. I, I, I understand your experiences. I understand your feelings, I understand your thought process, and I understand how looking at the world through your eyes, what you are saying makes... In Puerto Rico... 
We call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. Perfect sense. Right. So this is an interesting fact about nines that that I love to unpack with people. And that is, is that here they are. They're positioned at the top of the Enneagram diagram. It has one leg in six, right? It has another leg in three. And uh, three is the most conformist of all points. <laughs> and the other one, the six is the most nonconformist point, right? So what happens is you have all this ambivalence. You have this, I want to go after life. I want to get stuff done. I want to charge forward. And this other part, which is self-doubting and self-questioning and, and doesn't quite know what to do. And, and, you know, and so you get those together into the same body and you get a lot of sort of tortured kind of uh it's like uh, helen palmer describes it as you know driving with one foot on the gas and the other one on the brake <laughs> <laughs> yeah? so your your gas oh man your gas pedal is your three right you're you're you're, you're you know you're pushing on three on the gas pedal and your six is the brake you're just keep pushing and you're pushing both at the same time it's for a nine, if we have found something that lights us up. So for me, I was a bullied kid, mm -hmm. and I suffered a lot from rejection. Mm -hmm. So what will hit my gas is addressing the hurt people feel from rejection. Mm -hmm. If you look at all my work, the books, the podcasts, the talks, everything I do, even all the science stuff, which is amazes and dazzles people, uh, the heart of everything I do is I tell people, you are accepted. Mm. You are validated. And if I'm in that mode, man, I will work 20 hours a day. I will work myself into exhaustion. And the, the, the gas gets held down. And in my work, uh, when that's the space we're in with the liturgists, I, I, I can work as hard as anybody. But when I start to lose that mission, when we get involved in logistical things that I'm capable of and don't care about, or if we start to stray from that mission, um, my nineness won't let me like raise an objection. Mm. Right. <laughs> so what do I do instead? I simply say, well, I'm loyal to my friends. I'm loyal to the liturgists. And then that emotional energy shifts over to the break. And suddenly I'm the one missing deadlines. Mm -hmm. Suddenly I'm the one who doesn't see the emails. It's not intentional, but that break gets pushed in if I lose that three energy. And I become kind of a, just an inert mass that can't be moved. That's my form of resistance. Mm -hmm. It's not I'll say you're wrong or I don't think we should do that. It'll just become like pushing a boulder. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so I'm loyal to you. It's not like the, the relationship's in question. It's not like I'm out of here. It's just uh, I've gone away. And sometimes uh, the most confusing times for me are when 
like you say, both of those modes get engaged at the same time. That's how I spent most of my life. Mm. And what I what I what my movement in the last few years and what's made me capable of public work and what's made me capable of of honestly doing more of what nines do is learning to moderate those energies and focus on them when appropriate. And also to realize to kind of hack my nine mentality and understand sometimes the way to get what I need, uh, sometimes the best way of actually preventing conflict is through a tough conversation, is through some conflict. So I have to kind of steel myself up first, mm. sometimes for days, but then I'll say, hey, we need to we need to have a put a conversation on the calendar. That's always like a red flag for me is if you're working with me or a friend and I say, hey, can we put a conversation on the calendar? That means I'm going to steal myself up for saying something you don't want me to say. And my, I think you don't want me to say. But doing that, actually leaning into that, has brought me more intimacy and friendships and not less. Mm. It's brought greater trust with people and not less. But even with that success, I'm still always tempted to just revert to say nothing, feel nothing, be nothing, mm-hmm. and then just kind of um, how can I, how can I just kind of stay at peace through some kind of narcotic? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean a, a, a literal chemical narcotic, although I think for some nines it probably is. Yep. For me, my narcotics are walking outside by myself eating ice cream, eating pizza. Uh, honestly, I will sit in a chair in a room and look at the wall, not television, not reading. I'll just kind of sit and stare out into space, and the, which is really hard for other people to imagine as being therapeutic. But for a nine, that's like, oh, man, that's as good as it gets. Yeah, you know, um, this whole idea of narcotizing is so... Uh, important because what nines are doing oftentimes is they're tamping down desire they're 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 pressing down life force i mean literally they're turning down the life force uh it's almost as if they get too close to something too close to something too important in their life they just turn it down because it's almost like i don't want to go there i don't i don't want to claim that because i don't want to claim self assertion i don't i just don't want to mm. i just don't want to do it and so then they well what do you got to do i mean you got to figure out somehow or another to kind of keep all that stuff down so whether it's eating or uh for some it would be exercise oddly enough or it might be uh you know could be well, any number of things like sitting on the, i mean being in a couch potato laying on the couch and watching six episodes of stranger things you know it's just it, it anything to check out to get disconnected from the anger from the des, from desire from all those life force i mean yeah i mean narcotizing is and you got to tell a nine that is not relaxing because that's what they'll tell you. Hmm. They'll tell you, I'm relaxing. You go, no, you, no, <laughs> no, that is not relaxing. That is called, you know, like, uh, that's like saying, you know, if you got a meth needle in your arm, I'm relaxing. You know? Right, right. No, it's not. It's a false form. It's a counterfeit form of peace. I had, uh, I guess maybe the first time I realized that I was in a therapy session. And um, at, at this point in my life, I was going to therapy because um, I had a faith transition. I didn't believe what I used to, and I found myself kind of ejected from my faith community, Mm. which was incredibly traumatic. 
uh, I'd say it's probably the most traumatic thing that's happened in my life. So I was seeing this therapist and she would ask me about like when I'd been rejected. So I said, well, you know, talked about the bully thing. And I described in clinical terms and excruciating detail, acts of bullying, what had happened to me, what I did in response, no emotional investment, which made me think, oh, I've processed this completely. And then my therapist said, well, how did that make you feel? Mm. And when she said, well, how did that make you feel? I felt like I'd passed by a, a hallway in my house with a door that I'd never seen. And I put my hand up to the door and it was just, it felt as hot as the sun behind that door. Like the house was on fire behind the door. So I was like, well, I'm not going to open that door. So I said, that question makes me really uncomfortable. (laughs) And she said, why does that question make you uncomfortable? I said, well, if I talk to you about how I feel, I'm either going to like yell or sob. And she goes, well, why would that be a bad thing? And I was like, well, those are really wasteful emotions. And she says, why is that a wasteful emotion? I said, well, they're very unpleasant to experience and they don't accomplish anything. Mm. They don't make me feel good. They make me feel bad, and they don't change the situation. And she said, well, do you think it's healthy just to bottle those feelings down? I said, well, I don't know if it's healthy. And she said, well, what if you just what if you just told me how you felt? And if you cry, that's okay. So I started to describe how I felt. I couldn't say a word. And instead, I just kind of sobbed for a half second, kind of a, <gasps> and then I stopped. Mm. And my eyes dried up, and she said, what just happened? I said, well, when I was a little kid, I realized that if I cried, they just kept beating me. Mm. Because then it was funny. So I learned how to relax my torso and how to clench my tear ducts and do a series of things that would make me not cry. And ever since then, I've actually been unable to cry. Mm. So I went through a time in therapy where I... We literally just got into a space talking about uh, experiences where I had to reverse that process and actually allow myself to cry, which led to weeks and weeks of therapy where all I did was cry. Mm. But I was in my 30s. But when my when family members would die, I could never cry. I could only have these little momentary sobs at different moments in the day, which I felt grateful for. It felt necessary to mourn their passing but it's like i spent several months in a therapist's office letting go of 30 plus years of grief Mm. and once i was able to do that it was this this briny river coming out of out of my soul that made me feel clean and it was only after i learned to accept sadness and learn to be able to cry in grief or lament or heartache, that then I could start to do the same with anger. There you go. Come on now, and tell me about that. Because I I was just sitting here going, okay, I'm a four. I could cry for the next, you know, for whatever. But I, I, <laughs> you know, tell me about, but to get to me about that anger now, you're saying that the doorway into the anger was first you had to plow through the grief. Is that is that what you're saying? And, and Yes. Okay. The, gr- the anger was underneath an ocean's worth of grief. Yes. Right, so the the it turns out I had an ocean, and instead of bedrock underneath it, there was magma. Okay, okay, but this is fascinating. I mean, I've never really thought about this, but for for many people, it's actually anger is the first thing, and then 
it's mm. grief is what's underneath this and they go to anger because that's a place of power and control you don't feel like you're you know uh powerless i mean grief is really a powerless feeling uh and then so but a nine is fine being powerless exactly this is scary about being powerless (laughs) i know this is why it's so fascinating i've never really sort of thought about this until you're saying it so keep going you had grief first now tell me about how i had grief and that was fine because because grief means i'm not affecting anyone but myself I, i i was a ball i worked in a fortune 100 company and i had lots of employees and my own authority terrified me. Because if I have authority over someone, if I have power over them, then I have an increased ability to hurt them. My actions can cause suffering. And that is unthinkable for a nine. I hate being in charge of people. I hate having authority. There's no authority on earth I trust less than myself. <laughs> and the power that comes from anger terrifies me because i'm i'm six foot one i weigh 240 pounds i'm pretty saggy around the middle but i'm still a big guy but you're a handsome if I but get, you're a handsome man i am i'm incredibly I've always handsome, felt but, deeply attracted to you <laughs> whenever i get angry it scares people mm. people are frightened of me if i show anger mm-hmm. and i don't i don't want that so when i first started to get in touch with the fact that i had anger underneath all that grief it's like I shut the vault door twice as hard as it had been closed in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've had to learn, uh, again, mainly through therapy and also through having really safe friendships. I'm very blessed in that I have a, a, a good number of people in my life who will really accept me up or down, good or bad, wherever we are. Right. Uh, to say, I can say, I can have an outburst which if you don't suppress them for 30 years, an outburst is actually not that terrifying. And then you can just say, I'm sorry, that really upset me. What we're talking about hurt my feelings. Mm. And at that point, you, you cease to have anger being about uh, power and instead as like diagnostic. So when it's something about me, my anger tends to be, I treat it as a warning light. What I have found on the other hand is I actually can get angry in like a sustained way about issues of justice. When I see how increasingly how women are treated in our society through sexual harassment and sexual assault, I get angry and I stay angry. Mm. As I get more and more aware of the way people of color have different life experiences than I do, I get angry. And I found that that anger, as long as it doesn't become a drug, where it's an outrage that I'm just enjoying, if it's instead a fire in my belly that says, I cannot tolerate this injustice, that is not an anger to be feared. That is an anger to be harnessed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, I'm a person um, uh, who puts a lot of emphasis on the teachings of uh, Jesus. And part of my journey towards accepting anger uh, was to to see times in Scripture that uh, Jesus is illustrated as being angry mm-hmm. and being upset, sometimes caring about himself, sometimes being upset about what other people are doing, and sometimes being truly furious over issues of injustice. And I almost needed like divine permission to accept anger because the only anger I understood as a child was an anger 
that scared people into submission and falling in line. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, a true anger isn't about that. Yeah, I think a lot of nines would say that the fear, one of the fears they have about anger is that it would lead to annihilation. Uh, that that mm. to actually experience it or to let it loose would it would it would involve fatalities. Uh, and as a four, it's interesting. I was just sort of thinking about this for a moment. Um, when we have grief, and I would say in therapy, the first thing I felt was grief, not anger. But it's for an entirely different reason. It's for fours. It's because oftentimes we um, tend to fix our attention on some experience of suffering in order to avoid looking at or thinking about the real issue of suffering. Mm. And so a lot of times mm. it's like, well, I'm all I'm really grief stricken when actually you just don't want to look at the fact that you're super angry, you, you know, and so you go to your default, which is sort of sadness and uh, maybe being a victim or being someone special that was, you know, marginalized, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, okay. So I want to know from you how, you know, you've managed, you know, I think our stereotype of nines is, is that they're kind of like Bill Murray in that movie. What was it? St. Vincent? What was that movie? Remember when he's like, uh, (laughs) (laughs) he's in the, Oh man, that's a good film. Yeah, right. (laughs) Isn't that a nine? He's in the, he's in the lawn. Uh, Yeah. He's in his bathrobe and the lawn chair in the backyard. And you know, just kind of, it looks resigned, but really it's just going with the flow of whatever life brings, right? But you've got two big podcasts, you a demanding speaking schedule, you, you've you got uh, books, you, 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 you're a very accomplished person. If I were saying, if I were stereotyping, not typing, I'd say, boy, you can't be a nine, you look like a three, you know what I'm saying? Or, or I would say you're an eight or yeah. whatever. So help people understand because the 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 passion or the deadly sin of nines is sloth. You do not sound slothful in the stereotypical sense of the word. I know why some of our listeners may not unpack that for us. I first would say that I still view myself as incredibly slothful. <laughs> I self-identify as slothy. Um, slothish? Because Are you slothish? Definitely. Very, very well. I mean, my my wife literally bought me a beanbag sloth years ago before we even knew about the enneagram. That felt good because I mean, yeah, I mean, it was just uh, that's what I become. I get very tired, and I still do. Uh, so part of what I do is I start by acknowledging, like, I'm a person who needs rest. I can go to the party that starts at 10 p.m. occasionally. But most of the time, I go to bed at 9.30, um, and I kind of like preemptively sloth. So if I go to bed at 9.30, like every night, maybe 10.30, um, I start building a reservoir of physical and emotional energy, and, and I start rising early, and uh, I build a routine for myself. So one thing nines like a lot is predictability. So my day is incredibly ordered every day. Um, I start with this creative time and this creative work in the morning time after I kind of have breakfast and time with my family. And then at around lunchtime, I'll kind of shift gears and I'll go into more of like communication with the outside world. And then in the evening, I'll spend time with my family or friends again and then early to bed. And that's my non-tour routine. Um, but I'm sure a lot of nines would say, well, I've tried that 
And I end up just not doing anything in those creative hours. And that's because uh, you're still a mystery to yourself. You haven't learned enough about you to know what you actually want to do in life. So I think it's necessary for every nine to figure out why they're a nine, to figure out why they're afraid of their own preferences and their own feelings and certainly their own anger. Because if you find what provoked that wound, you start seeing where it exists in the world and it calls out to you. And when you hear that call of other people's woundedness, you wake up every morning thinking, how can I address those wounds? And how can I prevent other people from being wounded in that way? Nines make incredible advocates for victims and marginalized people. Mm. And when you find that energy, suddenly you can't stop working. Suddenly at the end of the day, your partner or your spouse is dragging you out of your office saying, watch out, you're going to exhaust yourself. I mean, last year... I put myself in the emergency room from working too much, Mm. which is an unimaginable thing for a nine to say, but it comes from that self-knowledge. Here's how I've been hurt, acknowledging that, yes, you've actually been hurt, but then using your process towards healing and towards health as a way of inviting other people to do the same, and suddenly strangers think, you're a three. <laughs> All your friends know you're a nine because they see you when you fall out of that mode, when you're tired again, when you just want to be still. Uh, but casual acquaintances see a lot of podcasts and a lot of interviews and a lot of books and a lot of projects get putting out. But it's because literally everything you do comes down to that single thing that made you a nine in the first place. Well, as you can hear, Ian is having another rich conversation on typology. And trust me, folks, it just gets better. Be sure to join us next week in part two of our two-part series with Mike McCarg, a.k.a. Science Mike. We look forward to having you join us then. And in the meantime, this is Anthony Skinner wishing you a very happy holiday season. Mm-hmm.